Hello, Alaska. This is Pat Race. And this is Matt Buxton. And this is a podcast about Alaska. All right, Pat, it's been a while since our last time. I think we both had major dental surgery in the last uh, couple in the, in the interim here uh, between episodes. Yeah, we wanted to record last week, but I th- think your mouth hurt too bad or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Everyone, you just be sure to floss. That's all. That's my main thing. Um, so there's been a lot of stuff going on in the last couple weeks here. Uh, I think we've had uh, Senator Lisa Murkowski's U.S. address. We had Representative David Eastman's doing Representative David Eastman sort of stuff that I think we don't really want to go into too much. But, you know, there's sort of a lot of, like, big picture issues that I think the legislature is trying to tackle right now. Education, uh, the budget, the dividend, uh, recruitment and retention, retirement stuff. And we kind of were talking about it, and it all sort of really comes back down to this issue of um, state employee recruitment and retention stuff. And so uh, this last week, the uh, Senate majority rolled out this legislation that would return the state to a defined benefit, more of a pension system for public employees rather than what we've had for the last like 15 years. And it really does like touch almost every single issue that we have going on in Alaska right now. Yeah. And actually even to st- like go back one step further, it feels like we've had this like cascading diminishing benefits program that's that's evolved. Like we've got this tier one that turned into tier two that turned into tier three that turned into. And so it, you know, as we kind of come off our um, state's oil boom and as we see sort of generational shift, there's just been a, a, a massive change between the kind of benefits like my parents have and the kind of benefits that younger folks that I see in state government today have. And there's like this huge disparity there that's not really ever addressed or talked about. Yeah. And, it, you know, it kind of it sort of feels like to me the way to talk about it is that back when the state was building and, and trying to attract people and it had all this oil wealth and it looked like things were going to be great forever, like it designed a, a very, very, very good retirement plan that included a great health benefit. Like it's a good plan for the tier one and even some of the tier two people like ended up with very nice retirement plans off of it. And and they ended up basically in the mid two thousands. Um, what really happened, you know, is that the state got sort of hooked up with this like actuary, the you know, person who's sort of deciding about how much they should be funding it and how much they should be taking care of the system. So what happened is that they ended up with this massive like unfunded liability, which isn't like a bill that's due tomorrow, right? It's it's basically like how much is in the system and how much will it eventually need to pay out and what's the difference? And so they basically looked at it and go, oh no, we can't ever do this ever again. And they basically turned around and, and they went from the most gener- one of the most generous retirement plans in the country to like one of the absolute least generous retirement plans in the country. So, so the other thing too is that the old plan was so good that you know, you didn't even need Social Security. So the state is opted out of Social Security. So no public employees in the state get it. And then the the plan right now is basically it takes all of the risk that the state would normally have, this unfunded liability, and really it just sort of gives it to the employee in the form of a 401k. And so, you know, so the management is sort of left up to the individual and the risk, right, is left to the individual. So if, if your market crash happens right as you're retiring and your entire retirement's wiped out then 
you should have invested that money better. Yeah. Well, and it relies on a lot of individual expertise rather than this like collective experience, right? So instead of having uh, a retirement account that's managed by experts in fiscal management, uh, you know, you're on your own. Good luck. Like that. Yeah. And that's a little bit scary and people make bad decisions, you know? And so we saw some of these numbers come out and, and, and you watch some of these hearings. What, what are some of the how do some of the returns compare? And do you feel like we're getting a picture of the reality? Or do you think we're getting sort of a like fluffy, happy version of it? Well, I think that they would like to give a fluffy, happy version of it, right? So there are a couple of weeks ago, we had a hearing that was, you know, looking at um, where the real world retirement accounts are at, right? And this is supposed to be the idea is that you know, they, uh, they talked about is that when they pass the retirement plan back early on, it was supposed to be equal benefit, right? So 15 years, 15, 16 years later, like, what are we seeing? And, and so they make all these like assumptions in it about where like, hypothetically, you should be right. And it's, it's basically you're putting away way more than you would ever expect to put for someone to put away and you are earning way more than anyone would ever expect you to do. And then you're also drawing way more out of your savings account uh, in retirement than the normal sort of account would do. And so all those things, even those sort of hypothetical situations, it wasn't expected to do as well as the old plan. In reality, it's even worse. And so it's like a vast majority of employees are are well below where they should be in saving for retirement. They have this idea about like what a successful retirement is, and that's it's basically hitting like two thirds to seventy percent of what your you know final income is into retirement. It, it's a good it's a good metric. Like if if anybody could be hitting so, that, that would be great. But wait, when you're saying that, are you saying you're saying two thirds of what you're earning your last year of employment uh, or your highest year of employment, say? Uh, maybe is, not quite highest year of employment, but something along those lines. Yeah. Yeah. So you should have a good a good year of employment. You should be budgeting for two thirds of that annually in retirement. Is that kind of yeah. the number? To kind of maintain your um, quality of life, I think is what yeah. they say. And so the real numbers, you know, show that pretty much nobody is hitting this metric. Um, you know, the only people that are really hitting it are surprised people who are or are earning quite a lot so they can put away a lot more or are working a ton of overtime hours. And so there's a couple people, like literally just a couple people in these systems who are above pace. Um, but what it shows though, even in these calculations that the, those people who are like doing everything right would still be better off under the previous retirement tiers. So, I mean, it, I think what it, re- I mean, it really starts to show, I think what we've in the numbers, what we've heard anecdotally for a long time now is that, you know, younger employees who are in this system, who are getting to the five-year vestment point, are looking elsewhere, right? You know, when you're starting to hit your, like, late 20s, early 30s, you're starting to think about retirement, and you're going, oh, wow, like, there's really not a lot of, like, safety net here. You know, there's not, I'm not getting Social Security. I'm I'm not getting even a guaranteed payout from this. And I think, I think there's a lot of people who are looking at that and going, I'm going to go somewhere else. Because, most states still have either, you know, a combination of Social Security or defined benefit pension or both. Honestly, like I've been looking at this sort of stuff and thinking about my own situation. Like I'm a reporter right. who's been doing this forever and I've got, you know, hardly any money put away. And I'm going, oh, I'm like, I'm personally in trouble. <laughs> yeah. But like, I, could, I mean, that's I'm what totally I'm thinking understand. while you're talking. I'm like two thirds of my own. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, you know, like, I know we all joke about, like, having to work until we're dead. Yeah. Not, I don't even know if we're joking anymore. I don't think it's a joke. But, like, I think that that's, like, that has always, to me, been, like, the benefit of why you'd work for the state, right? It's not your work. You're not necessarily working for public service because it pays a whole bunch. But because I think that it comes with good benefits. It comes with a retirement system that you can count on. And when you don't have that here, I think it becomes really easy to look other elsewhere. So we hear, you know, yeah. like in, we hear a lot in, you know, troopers and, and public safety where, you know, they get trained up. It costs, you know, somewhere between $25,000 or more to like train these people. They get in there and then five to 10 years later, they go, all right, I'm going to go to lower 48 and get a pension now. Same thing with teachers. You look at, um, you know, a lot of the early budget reports this year, almost every state agency has somewhere like 20 to 25 percent of the jobs it has are, are currently vacant and they're not even hiring for them because they don't have a lot of cases they don't have the capacity to hire for them but all this sort of stuff like then translates into slower permit approval fewer teach you know there's there's schools this year that started the school year without a teacher in every classroom right there are uh you know we talk about the food stamp backlog that was another uh, story that we got a lot of attention this week um that you know, they have 54 vacant positions in it right now. Uh, it takes almost two years to get, like, fully trained up to do that sort of stuff. And then it only is paying 20 to $24 an hour. So you're probably not, you know, hitting your retirement goals in there either. Right. You um, may as well be, like, working at one of the restaurants in town. Yeah. And it, you're probably doing less work. It's, you know, they, you know, they, they were talking about how the food, uh, the public assistance people had to hire security because people were getting so mad about it. Yeah, they had to put in bulletproof glass. Yeah, and if I'm work. one of those employees, it's like it's just not worth it for me. If I'm not if I'm not earning a great wage and I'm not I don't have a good retirement like waiting for me, like I'm not going to put up with it, right? And I think that's what we're seeing in a lot of these different areas. And so that's definitely a big driving reason behind why we saw this new legislation come out this week. This conversation certainly has me thinking about my own retirement and like what that looks like. When I was in my 20s, uh, the decision was about stability and risk. You know, was I, if I was risk averse, I probably would have got a job working for the government or working for a big company. My trade-off was sort of this like freedom versus security. Like both are attractive things. Security is very attractive. Freedom is very attractive. And I sort of went the freedom route. Well, also you're building a business that you own too. You're not like that. I don't necessarily mean to take a huge tangent here, but yeah, like, yeah, yeah. you know, I think that that's sort of the benefit of having a small business is, is that you are at least building up some form of equity that, you know, if you get to retirement, you could be senior citizen trying to sell off your comic shop. Right. And that could be part of your retirement. Right. And sure. Yeah. But that, I mean, somebody else, but. yeah, look, it's, that's not, I wouldn't say that's like a reliable, I, I look yeah. at like what, no. you know, little small businesses in town sell all the time and they don't sell for a ton, you know, they'll, yeah sit there for sale for like a while and then there'd be some quiet deal done in the dark of night that you know you probably yeah my parents good. just my parents just That's sold like, their business and i think it was mostly just yeah. getting done with it yeah i mean so yeah who knows maybe we build something that that is enduring that can change hands a few times but i but i the reality is like my my dad said he retired at age 18 and has to work for the rest of his life and I think that that's what I'm what I'm looking at and I do a lot of like sit down work so I'm I'm probably gonna be all right I'm not gonna be out in the out in the snow hammering nails when I'm 
70 but um if i'm capable i'll probably be doing a lot of like website work and video work for a long time <laughs> hey you know if we if we if we if, if they pass this bill and we go get our state employment tomorrow then it's about 30 years right you'd be in your 60s uh, 70s no. <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm uh, I'm I'm a little out over my skis, but I think this is kind of about this ne- next generation, and I think the b- big question is that the, you know, like ha- the root of this problem, of the root of the problem that we're having with retention of teachers, with hiring people to process food food stamps, to, to you know, to to even just having like good qualified government employees to carry out the day to day work in any department, like that all comes back to this recruitment retention hiring problem, which which boils down to like, can we pay people enough that it's attractive in the moment? Can we provide them with stability so that they can have a, a future ahead of them so that they can feel like they're in a safe, stable environment and not have to move out of state? And do we have the the housing? Like we're not talking about this mm-hmm. a lot right now, but like there's a housing crunch across the state in many communities that is causing people to move. I talked to someone yesterday that's going to move out of town for the summer because they can't find a place to live and hopefully he's going to come back and live in student housing in the fall because they'll be eligible as a student. In Juneau, we we basically have a problem where the amount of square footage each person takes up has ballooned because of this like baby boomer generational shift. We now have a lot of people that had big families in big houses that are now just like an elderly couple in a giant house. And so we've got there's a lot of kind of like underutilized housing in Juno in terms of square footage. So you've, you've got people that are uh, in these giant houses that could be subdivided or split up or they could move into a smaller place and a, a big family could move into a house and be more efficient. And on top of that, we've got this like Airbnb, VRBO vacation rental problem where Juno is an attractive tourist de- destination and the city's kind of slowly dipping their toes into this. I, I watched one of their finance meetings the other day. And they had a presentation on what does this look like in Juneau. And the interesting thing is that the, um, first of all, there's a lot of foregone tax revenue. There's a lot of people that are doing vacation rentals that are not paying taxes. The, uh, Anchorage is the only city in Alaska that collects taxes, bed taxes or sales taxes directly from the operator, from the from Airbnb, oh, say. So Juneau, we have a 5% sales tax and you have to remit that. So most people don't know that. They're running an Airbnb and they're skipping sales tax and city mm. might come around and knock on your door and say, hey, you've been doing this Airbnb for five years. Where's our sales tax? It, it was a disruptive business model. But as the as disruptive business models settle into the norm, people start asking questions, questions like, can you run a business in a residential zoning area, right? Can mm. you have a commercial business like a hotel or a bed and breakfast in a residential zone. And so the answer to that is, you know, going to be something the city has to resolve. And if the city says, we, we decide that the residential zoning of these types are exclusive to short-term rentals, then that could solve a lot of problems and create a lot of problems because people have invested in these properties under the sort of current lenient system you could just end up with a lot of people that have put a lot of money into their Airbnbs that can't use them as Airbnbs that are pretty pissed off. So I think that's really what though. Airbnbs delicate. are not, I, I do not lo- like tra- traveling to them as much as they used to though. They are not nearly the deal. I think that's what it's interesting you know, just to see how the business model like evolves is like, yeah, it clearly is not as lucrative to run them as it once was because they are now, you know, charging these exorbitant like cleaning fees and all that sort of stuff. And yeah, 
it really does you know a lot as a as a consumer it's almost like it frequently becomes more uh comfortable and more economically you know makes more sense just to stay at a hotel now what i'm seeing is that they're less of like a mom and pop operation it's less of like yes. like you're staying in someone's house and here's their favorite parts of town and like here's the little thing they put together for you to tour their neighborhood and now it's just like these cookie cutter it feels like walking into a home depot showroom every time and <laughs> it's it's someone someone has like got all the latest cheapest home depot stuff slapped it on a janky apartment and they've got 10 others down the street and yeah and it feels much more like industrial feels more like a business right yeah yeah and and i think it's going to get treated more like a business you're paying much closer attention to the day-to-day ins and outs of the legislature are they talking about the housing issue at that level or is that still kind of a municipal problem it really does seem like more of a municipal problem in their eyes you know that we get we we do talk about it a lot when they talk about um, especially hiring in rural Alaska, you know, for, for teacher jobs, for, for public safety officers, for VPSOs. Um, so there is, there, there's a little bit of movement on that front. Uh, I think this year they're looking at basically, a, I think a couple of years ago, they put some money into, I think, trooper housing. And now they are loosening some of those rules to allow that like publicly paid for housing to be used by teachers or, or, health aides or you know whatever else so there is a little bit of movement on that front but you know it doesn't i don't think it touches the cities at all well they'll get an up close look at the housing situation if they have a special session this year yeah (laughs) i mean that's what's interesting right you look at some of the reporting and and you see people talk about how expensive it is there i think you know the let one of the interesting things too is that you know the legislature has last year rejected right the pay there was a pay. There's a recommendation for basically a pay cut for legislators to cut their per diem pretty substantially, and they rejected it. And a lot of the justification was like it's going to become really difficult for us to come to Juno because we have to pay for our own housing here. So yeah, and that's the the board that determines salaries for the legislature and the governor, right? And mm-hmm. there was an interesting piece I saw, like uh, Stevens, I think. Uh, Senator Stevens came out and said something about how like we should just do away with it and it's and um, that it's sort of rife with conflict and controversy. Um, what's the yeah, what's the background well, there? I mean, it, this is what happens when you uh, appoint people who hate government to positions that oversee government. So, I mean, I've listened to several of the hearings on it. You know, it used to have Johnny Ellis, um, Anchorage senator, on it who was a voice of reason, you know, who was basically saying like, hey, you can't cut these people this this deeply because it, it's not going to work. And then but you have then there's a several commission commission members appointees of Dunleavy who basically say, oh, you know, those damn legislators screw them, basically. And, and that's really where the direction of this committee commission has been in, in the last couple of years. It's really been uh, punitive aimed at legislators it, as kind of driven by this animosity over what they feel like is over long special sessions kind of i think really overlooking the reasons you know why we have these special sessions i think there's this weird assumption that that's just sort of the the major inertia pushes everybody towards special sessions and not you know a couple handful of people who are pulling levers to draw it all out anyway so um, that's, that's, there's a lot of animosity on it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting to see different boards kind of evolve. And, and, you know, we're, as we're entering 
year five through eight of the Dunleavy administration, we're gonna they're gonna become heavily steeped with uh, and and entrenched with with Dunleavy appointees, and um, they're gonna be behaving much differently. Yeah, noted accused racist Judy Elledge is on uh, a commission now, so. Yeah, which uh, she but she got appointed to a national position or something, right? Yeah, it's a national commission, so there's no s- legislative approval of this, so that's yeah. fun. Well, I mean, but yeah, so- then we you know we just have you know there's other news about the Human um, Rights Commission just decided that kind of quietly decided that some forms of uh, discrimination against LGBTQ plus people is permissible. So that's another yeah. element to be worried about i don't know if we need to get we're, we're getting a little far that, afield but i'd love to get back to like so the 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 initial thing that is like tying a lot of our big big picture budget questions and and employment questions and actually like spinning off all these other problems is this recruitment retention how how is that now being addressed and what can you tell me about the bill that was just recently introduced so I think like the the best way to keep think about this bill is um you know I think Senator Kathy Geisel who's the the prime sponsor of it introduced as you know this isn't your grandma's uh defined <laughs> pension plan defined yeah. benefit pension plan It's not tier 1 And and she's right like it's not nearly as generous it's like far far less generous than what this is and that's to say like and then you know the, the important context right is that the previous plan was really generous right so this one, you know, there's some edges where they really make it you know, not as good, right? So there are, you know, it's a longer period to, to where they, you know, they it's a five-year average rolling at the end to determine your, your benefit rather than three years, right? So you have to be working over, you know, the idea there is that people work a lot of overtime in the last few years to, to boost up what they're getting paid. Now there's a five-year window, so you have to be working harder at least if you're going to do that, you have to work for five years instead of three. Yeah. For that really hard level. You can't um, just get appointed to a commissioner job for two years and then yeah. cash out. The, the big, the really the big, the big biggest change in all of this is that um, it doesn't provide any supplemental health care in retirement. So it's a potentially pretty big cost, um, definitely a big cost if you're retiring before Medicaid age. And the previous plans even had like supplemental health care on top of Medicaid or Medicare, excuse me. Um, so once you get to Medicare age, there's so you, in that window you'd have to be buying your own insurance on the health on the marketplace or yeah. getting another job or something like that. I think that's kind of what they you know that uh, with all of this right. I think it's it's they're really trying to navigate like the political reality of the situation, which is that you still need to get this through the Senate. Still, like it it has ten co-sponsors, but it's got to get through the Senate finance committee which has not been super jazzed on defined pension benefit pension plans in, in recent years yeah um you got to get it through the house you got to get it through the governor so i think there's a lot of concessions in here that are are aimed at at kind of minimizing the cost of it they're saying right now we will we'll, there'll be many more hearings on all this but you know they're saying right now that it it's not expected to cost as much as even the current plan so you know, we'll see. And I think, though, the part of it is that you're always going to have reflexive Republican conservative opposition to this because they remember, you know, what happened last time, right, is that they, they got to this point where it was they got this big, massive, unfunded liability in the system. And I think there's going to be some opposition to any plan that could potentially create that. Yeah, um, but I situation. think the important the important thing to remember there, though, is that that wasn't 
in, I don't believe that was because the system was inherently bad. It was because they were given bad advice, right? They, right. They were given I mean, the almost thing, yeah. fraudulent advice. Yeah, well, it literally was fraudulent, right? There was a huge court case over it, and all the sort of claims of uh, actual actuarial malpractice, right? And so, yeah, like we we got into it. Because there was a you know someone who led the state astray on it, and it was you know a massive issue. And I wish that they understood that more clearly because it's like it doesn't these systems don't automatically trend towards insolvency. Yeah. Yeah, they're not designed to like make you bankrupt in in fifty years. They're designed right. to work for the long term. Yeah, I mean, like the public employees don't want to get on a plan that is going to get underwater, right? And you know, like the the benefits are protected, right? But if the state goes bankrupt somehow, then they could reopen that sort of stuff. So I don't, you know, I don't think it's in anyone's interest to, you know, drum up a, a gold plated plan that's going to bankrupt the state. And I think that there's going to be a lot of people and a lot of sort of forces pulling on that to make it more, you know, more quote-unquote sensible or you know solvent moving forward you you put a plan like that in place and it's still going to take a while to recruit people right to, to build up your workforce or to like entice new people into the workforce it's not going to be like an overnight turnkey solution and you go back to talking about your snap benefits you said there's 54 positions to fill like change those benefits and maybe you'll get a few more but it's still going to take time to ramp up and fill all those. right well i mean in that situation it, that's another really interesting case there where you have you know, I think they, they're only advertising for three of those 54 positions right now. I think they have, they have something like 20 or 30 people that are, like, in the process of being, like, uh, trained and brought on. Yeah. But it does, like, speak to, I think, a lot of the capacity issues with that, that this is going to take a very long time to unwind and and catch up with. I'm trying not to go down my rabbit hole about the, the, the public benefits being a whole quagmire themselves, but, yeah. What, oh, what do you mean? Go down well, that specifically, hole. I mean, like the real, re- I mean, another big reason that the whole public assistance program is all messed up is because we have put all these, you know, eligibility determinations and extremely complicated forms on it, right? Yeah. It's almost like we don't care about public assistance or we, or we want to make it at least very difficult to get public assistance. And I think that kind of like comes back around to this, like the big question I think we have moving forward with the retirement and retention stuff is like, do we want public employees to be able to retire with some level of dignity moving forward, right? Yeah. And I think that, like, and I think some conservatives will say, like, well, you know, the public's private sector doesn't have good retirements. And it's like, they should, right? Everyone should have a, a shot at a good retirement, I would say. And, like, I think that looking at a, a thing and saying it's, like, too generous or too good, so therefore we shouldn't do it for anybody, is, like, a really bad approach to... Um, public policy and so like i think that like yeah like maybe maybe part of this conversation moving forward too is like how do we find a good retirement for or incentivize good retirement for people working in the private sector right how do you how do you find those you know that's social security right but like you know how do we how do we you know build these systems where you know the this sort of quote unquote like good stuff that we're doing for private or public sector employees is also happening for private sector people you know we talk about pay and we talk about all this sort of stuff and it's like you know it's like the the retire hiring issues aren't unique to the state government right there's all you can hear it from everybody that there's you know not enough people to work right now and it's you get yeah. to issues you get back to the sort of foundational issues like are you paying them enough to have a decent life you know living are you giving them 
any sort of security to have any sort of dignity in their life. And I think a lot of these people were complaining about it. The answer is no, right? And so, anyways, that's my, my soapbox for the day. It, it's interesting to, to, to think about, like, who's making these decisions about retirement as well, because a lot of uh, legislators have retirement benefits built up of their own. It's, it would be interesting to me to understand better how those are coloring some of this experience. And some of these legislators have incredible retirement benefits packages that they don't have to really think about. And so, like, it makes it easy to say, why doesn't everyone just have an incredible retirement benefits package that they don't have to think about? You know, part of that is this pulling up of the ladder, right? Like, and we've, we've seen this in Alaska. I think, you know, I'm kind of slowly coming to terms with the fact that Alaska is a state in decline. You know, my generation, the, the generation that's, that's coming on my heels, like we have far less opportunity and far less resources to work with than the previous generation that came into Alaska during an oil pipeline boom. And they're the ones that are now also have made a lot of the decisions that have pulled up the ladder behind them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that it's a complicated, tough thing to, to recognize that like, we're maybe not, we're going to maybe be like the first generation here in a long time that hasn't made it like slightly better for the next generation coming along. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we talk about going back to the housing conversation, right? You know, the, a lot of the policies that we have there are, yeah, right. They're designed to keep neighborhoods looking a certain way, right? They are designed to have you know large lot lines and you know they aren't particularly friendly to mixed use right and i I think there's a lot of these policies that um you look in a lot of different areas where it's basically you know it's not building the world that i think we would like to see right like i think a lot of us you know there's a lot of conversations especially about you know public transportation and, and like walkable communities in anchorage and it, all this sort of stuff is like hampered by you know like minimum parking uh, numbers and um, all that sort of stuff where these uh, these policies that are driven by you know a generation that's not going to be around a whole lot longer i mean i don't mean to be like dark about it but it, it it does feel like i think that you know what kind of world are we building for ourselves moving forward and i think that is a really good question to be asking because you know the the kind you know just like a retirement right we need to be working on these we should have been working on all this stuff 10 years ago if we want to see it um affect you know happen in our lifetimes right, right. if we want to have like a walkable community we should have been doing it 15 years ago yeah yeah and that's a that's a great way of framing things is that like you know looking ahead uh you know it takes it takes some runway to build things and i don't feel like we're building the runway for the next 10 years, the next 15 years right now. I feel like all we're doing is patching holes. And I was in the in the shop down at the, the gallery a couple of weeks ago, and these uh, kids came in, they had UAF jackets on, and they'd come down to talk to their legislator. And, and I had some flashbacks to when I was in the student senate, and we got to come down and meet the, you know, it was educational for us, but also they sort of use us as little lobbying tools, right? But it was great. I was like, what's the what's what are you guys working on this year what's the big thing and they said their big ask was uh they have 1.3 billion dollars in deferred maintenance and you know i you look in the anchorage newspaper every day there's like a building collapsing under snow Mm -hmm. load and like there's this this tugboat in juno that just sank all this infrastructure all these things that were built kind of as as the state was being built they're past their prime and it's the state is now slowly like crumbling around us and like literally crumbling around us and 
part of it is that we're just not doing the maintenance and we're not, you know, so you talk about that $1.3 billion in deferred maintenance that the university has and the state's not going to be able to fix that this year or next year or the year after that. And slowly that deterioration just kind of, you know, it grows and spreads and becomes a bigger and bigger problem. And it's, it's interesting to me how much uh, we've put off looking towards the future to just sort of like fill potholes from the past and I, I don't know how we catch up because it feels like right now we're just we're, we're sort of stuck doing a lot of like bubble gum and scotch tape repairs on things that we we're you know just like you're talking about with the retirement system um, we're never going to catch up on that and and when we do it's gonna be 10 years down the road and we're gonna have <laughs> it's gonna be kind of like what's the next problem it, we need to be thinking about the next problem now um, to be able to address it in time for it to not be a problem. And yeah. one of the big problems I see on the horizon is population gain. If Alaska's population were to take off, if let's say there, let's say that there are states where water is, is becoming an issue, for example, and there becomes like climate motivated moving to Alaska, if, you know, if a million people move out of California because they, they don't have access to water and a small fraction of that comes to Alaska, if a hundred thousand people come to Alaska, that's a huge population boom for Alaska. And what that does is under our current fiscal situation, it spreads out all of our resources because we have no way to, we have no way to capture growth. Like we have nothing that like that per capita Aside from our local city sales taxes, we really don't have a lot that's going to capture um, growth. And so what happens if a bunch of people move here, if 100,000 people move here? That means we're dividing our permanent fund number by a bigger population. We're getting smaller PFDs. Mm -hmm. It means we're dividing our services by a bigger population. We have fewer services. It means our revenues spread more thin and it doesn't, you know, our revenue doesn't magically increase if more people arrive right now. And you know, I, as much as Republicans are like terrified of even saying the word tax, or as much as Democrats are afraid of even saying the word tax, there are a lot of Democrats in the state who won't talk about income taxes because they just know it's like not something that can ever get off the ground. But if we don't put in place an income tax at some point or some kind of a statewide sales tax that captures revenue from people who are visiting and moving to Alaska, we're going to be behind the ball in 10, 15 years when our population grows. And so that's the thing that down the road, like looking at like right now we're patching holes, t I, 10, 15 years down the road, we're going to be wishing that we had a way to capture the revenue from all the influx of people that are going to be moving here as climate refugees. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I think that, I mean, I think that, that, I mean, you get to the root of the issue there, right? Is that, I think there's a, there's this huge disconnect between like the public pol the policy that comes out of the legislature and the governor's office and, and local governments and what is really needed I think and I think a lot of that you know I think you're right it comes down to the disconnect I think there's because you know there's no you know there's no direct benefit for you know more workers or more economic activity in the state and the state government the state government I kind of feel like doesn't have a whole lot of drive to do anything about it. I think you see, you see sort of the big lobbying efforts, and you see stuff like the Willow Resolution move really quickly because, you know, there's been somebody whose job it is to, you know, articulate to the legislature why this is an important thing. There's not like that same kind of energy or effort for 
walkable communities, right? Because there's not billions and billions of dollars to be made off of having a neighborhood bakery and a coffee shop, right? Like, and I think that's what is is so interesting to me is is you know how do you how do you start to build that together? And I think it you really just start to get back to some of the really deep political breaks in there. I think there are people who sincerely believe government has no role in any of this, right? That government should be out of the way. You know, we could just build wasillas everywhere with where we have highways, you know, hugging or uh, commercial districts hugging highways and stuff. And so, you know, how, how we reach out of that, right? It, you know, you get back to, you have legislators who look at the dividend and the size of the dividend and say, hey, if we cut that in half, we can pay for it, all the education increases that everyone wants. We can pay for all the deferred maintenance in the entire state in one year, and uh, and we could do a little bit more. and 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 I think that's like kind. It's a hard conversation to break away from when you have the. There's a clear discomfort about cutting the PFD right for for what you know. There's many good and 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 not so good arguments for why you shouldn't cut the PFD. And I think it, it is just, it's so hard to break through, right? Because, you know, I, I look at it too and I go, heck, you know, if you didn't have the dividend, you could run this state in a way that would, you know, be paying out, you know, doing a lot of this public, you know, infrastructure building, all of these sort of progressive programs without any taxes, right? You could you could run the state in a, in a very generous sort of way with no taxes if you got rid of the pfd but then it requires you getting rid of the pfd and 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 you know that's obviously a decision that hits certain people more more hard than other people right and you know yeah. we get back to the question of like who benefits and who pays and all that sort of stuff but like it, it feels like that's still like the speed hump that we're not we're still unable to get over right and until we have any sort of like clear direction on that front it feels like we're not we're going to continue to be you know patching these holes with bubble gum right and and i think that's what is so difficult is that you know a lot of this has felt like opportunity costs right that we have spent the last six seven years basically fighting over these funding issues without really moving any of the conversation forward like the biggest thing that's happened on that front really is that we have the pomv thing where you know the the dividend the, the permanent fund is now contributing to state government, but in a way that is in direct conflict with how our dividend is, is supposed to be paid out. And I don't know how, I, I still don't know how you get past it, really. I think I maybe there's some merit to having this as a public vote in some way, or maybe, maybe how do you, how do you settle it, right? In this session, we've seen like pieces of, of a so-called fiscal plan move forward, but they're the pieces that only the conservatives like, and that don't, don't really you know, move the needle, like a spending cap that we wouldn't have to listen to, right? I don't think like too much spending has really been the huge problem in the last couple of years either. So, well, as a, um, as a sort of an academic exercise and knowing that we probably won't succeed, uh, let's take the next week and go out and talk to people that we can talk to and, uh, think about this a little bit and come back and then you and I can, can, uh, just solve it we'll just uh yeah. we'll just solve it we'll just uh, yeah. have a little conversation and we'll make a decision and we'll pretend we're the the uh bicameral uh unigovernment government that gets to make this decision and 
and and actually if anyone's listening to this and has strong opinions about how how we should face down kind of the fiscal arrangement like whether that's taxes or whether that's the keep the pfd get rid of the pfd you know whatever your opinions are give us a call at find a pizza if you dial find a pizza you can leave a little voicemail message and we'll try and include as many of those as we can if we get any in the show we'd i'd love to hear some random voices from across alaska if there are people out there who've been thinking about this I'd love to know how this impacts you and how you'd like to see it resolved, because um, it is something that we've been chewing on as a state for you know seven seven or eight years now, and really has got us stuck in the mud. Mm-hmm. So um, so yeah, next week let's solve it. Done, fixed. Yep. All right. <laughs> do we want to talk about David Eastman before we go? Or is yes. That a, okay, yeah. we do. Okay. What yeah. do you think? So I mean, I. Yes, I think it's important because I recognize that David Eastman is a huge distraction. You know, I think that I think he's, you know, he's like Laura Reinbold. He's like Jamie Allard. He's like all these sort of people who say bombastic stuff and gets people riled up. I think he's kind of wily about it because he does these sort of things where he can kind of hide behind it. Right. Oh, he was you know, this latest thing where he's talking about whether or not the death of a child is an economic benefit to the state. You know, he. If you ask him about it, he just says that this is what this is oh, this is what the abortion supporters believe, right? What is interesting, what is important to me as somebody who kind of looks at this this whole legislative story, right? And is that I think that there are a lot of times where Eastman basically is saying the quiet part out loud in a way, you know, a quiet part being like, you know, I think that there are a lot of conservatives who would put a price tag on lives, uh, on public services, on whatever. And I think that Eastman said it out loud. And I think there are people that kind of believe that. And I, so the reason I, the, the real, and I think that there's, I have, a, I have actual evidence that we can talk about this with, but there's a, you know, the, led, the governor right now is proposing a bill that would extend Medicaid coverage for postpartum. So uh, basically women who have babies can, get a full full year of Medicaid coverage for them and their child and, and postpartum coverage. So it's, it's like proven to reduce negative outcomes, proven to reduce deaths, blah, blah, blah. Good cost 10 million bucks drop in the bucket. Really? Mm-hmm. We still get a hearing where, you know, a lot of Republicans, I think uh, representative Dan Sadler from Eagle river, a couple other people um, basically say, well, yeah, I mean, I understand the point of saving as many lives as you can, but also we got to balance the budget. And so there, to me, I think that there's like a decent, I think that there's, Eastman basically, what I want to say is that Eastman's not necessarily alone in like putting this price tag on people, right? Or, or at least like kind of viewing like ostensibly good public policy investments through the lens of, well, you know, yeah, we really like to save that poor person's life, but we can't afford it. And yeah. I think that, like, I th- that's that's really what, it to can- me, like, it is the, sort of the sticking point, is that everybody kind of looked at David Eastman and said, oh, my God, he's said the most horrible, detestable thing. We have to censure him. We have to, you know, wag our finger at him. We can't actually give him any sort of actual... Uh, sanctions. He's not going to take, you know, he's still on the committee, right? Like, he didn't face any penalties for what he said. But I think that there's, like, 
it, what's important is that I think people kind of do that and say, oh, you know, we're so far away from this horrible guy. But, you know, you look at some of the way that they talk about these policies and it's like it's not that far off, you know. And, and I think that's what is is so kind of important here. You know, you look at like the retention plan, the, we look at re- public employee retirement stuff. The, the House is moving forward with they have a legislation over there that would do a, a pension, but only for firefighters and police officers. And the major major complaint about it is that teachers might want it one day. Right. And I think that, like, to me, that the, all of this sort of stuff is that, like, you know, I think that there's some real conservative animosity towards poor people that we really can't and shouldn't overlook right that that for some reason that if you are poor or a person of color that you are not as entitled to the dignity and of 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 any of this stuff you know that that you know you look at the way the public food stamp backlog has happened right it you know yes there's a ton of missing employees over there but we've also designed the public assistance forms to be incredibly labor intensive and and difficult to fill out and I think that, to me, to you know, it all kind of it all kind of comes back to you know we have to remember that a lot of these systems we are have in place today are designed to make it difficult for people who are poor. Period. Right. And that's like I think, and I think, like it's it's frustrating because you can you know Eastman says this sort of thing and then people are like oh that is you know it's just the you know he's all he's alone on an island he's just off on awful town but no it's like there's a lot of there's a, there's this attitude this sort of animosity towards poor people is not unique to him and i think that's that to me is just the the point i just hope people don't forget right is that yeah he said something pretty terrible about disadvantaged young children. Yes, bad. That is very bad. But there are a lot of people who are saying that kind of stuff without it being as alarmingly bad, but the sentiment is still there. And I think that yeah. is what it, I think is 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 so important to me to keep in mind with this is that yes, you know, Eastman talks about this this way, but you know, when we're looking at a public policy that is intended to help poor mothers avoid the worst out you know easily avoidable outcomes of having a child and raising that child for the first year you have people going oh well you know 10 million dollars you go somewhere else it's 10 million dollars that is a small like small 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 drop in the bucket of the state government and and to have deceased people like pulling up on on this policy and, and saying that you know yeah like yeah, I, I don't like children dying, but if they're poor children and the poor children need my help, then then uh, well, then let's think about it. Let's have a debate. And it, it just it feels like to me that there's so much that kind of the Eastman and Eastman types to them, like the dignity of these people is like up for debate. And I feel like that is what is so frustrating to me. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, you you addressed a lot of pieces there and uh you know one one of them is that the the sort of hoops that they make people jump through are difficult and purposefully difficult and if you have a difficult process to obtain public benefits then you have to pay out fewer public benefits you know it's it's made harder so that access is harder so that you 
so that you have to pay less and so that you can look like you're doing the work of helping people, but all you're doing is tying them up in paperwork and and trying to make it difficult for them to receive these benefits. You know, that's what happening was right now with SNAP is that like all these people are have done their homework and they're waiting for their the, the food that, that we've decided that they are entitled to and they're not getting it. And yeah. you know, we have people that are, you know, it, it was reported in the paper there are people that are literally starving in Alaska as a result of this. And yeah. to get back to Eastman, you're right. He is a little bit of a litmus test. You know, you look at the people who are around him who are quietly supporting him. And he is kind of this, like, bright beacon of, like, you know, he's a butt. He's just, like, this bright, shining butt. And, but then you see... <laughs> all of these people that are around him that are quietly supporting him, you know, Sarah Vance wants him on this committee because he thinks mm-hmm. differently. When when they voted to um, censure him, there were people who were reticent about casting that vote and felt like they were forced to cast it. Cast it, you know, mm-hmm. like they didn't. They they were well. Like, they wanted to move on too. Yeah, they didn't want to. They didn't want to folk. They didn't want to look down that path too much. But he really stands out, and and he he says the quiet part out loud. And I think in this particular instance, I think that, you know, as a as a white guy who is brimming with white guy confidence, I know when I see a person who like gets way out over their skis and thinks that they're saying something smart and isn't. And he thought he was being clever and that he was saying some brilliant logic twisting brain melting shit. And he he didn't he like he biffed it. And he didn't yeah. he didn't say anything smart or insightful and he didn't frame it in a way that was useful. So, yeah, Eastman said something awful. We're not surprised. And it'll happen again. Yeah. I mean, Eastman dominated like several days of legislative coverage. Yeah. while you know, they're not getting stuff done. And, you know, I think that was actually a really interesting point that the House minority had this last week. They had their news conference, and they basically said, "Like, look, we we want to be making progress on school funding. We want to be making progress on retirements. Yeah. We wonder why that stuff's not happening. Go ask the minority of the majority. You know, that's yeah. a pretty good line, and I, I think it really does actually sort of talk about where sort of things stand right now. Is that I actually do think that there is the numbers to do a lot of these like." forward-thinking policies you know I, I and again i don't th- like i think that that's why the bills end up being this non-gold you know this sort of foil-plated retirement plan is because you need to get some of those moderate republicans on board but i think that those moderate republicans are at least they've got eyes and ears they know that it's not working out as well as it should be they know you know i think they might be more motivated by the oil and gas leasing permits and they are the snap backlog but it's still you know something that gets them motivated and working on it because they want to find a solution and i think you know they're not as reflexive about their opposition to these certain points right i think that you do have that minority of the house majority who is reflexively opposed to retirement plans reflexively opposed to public assistance reflexively opposed to any education funding too i think they are you know they all look at this stuff and they sort of automatically say no where i think there's a a new wave of people in there that says no actually we do need to fix this we need to fix at some point we can't not fix this yeah so we're going to see some probably see some fractures occur Mm-hmm. in in that organization and it's a, a non-binding caucus right the the house majority is 
is currently yeah, and, a non-binding caucus. And so, you know, when it really comes down to it, when we start seeing high pressure floor votes at the end of the session, things might tip a different way. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how much the levers of it can can hold the whole thing back, right? Because sure it's the minority of the majority, but the minority of the majority holds, you know, the rules committee chairmanship. They hold, you know, the chairmanships of several key committees. They can adjourn the floor session if they don't like what's going on, right? And so there's a lot of that sort of element of it that is going to make it very difficult to move forward. I think it'll be interesting to see, you know, what kind of concessions they might get with it. I think education funding is a really interesting conversation because, you know, there's a, there's a talk about, you know, increasing education funding pretty considerably. And, and I think that the Republicans and conservatives, the minority of the majority is looking at it as an opportunity to put the sticks to the school system, right? You know, I think that they they're talk they talk about accountability measures, right? As if that's something that we have like any clear concept of what that really means, but you know, I think that you know, they, there's been talking about, you know, school board databases, but I wouldn't be surprised if it ends up with something where, you know, it maybe it's the path to school vouchers is is part of this or maybe um I mean, that's what they want more than schools yeah. being defunded. They're interested in schools being you know underfunded they're interested in public funding going to private schools and religious schools which is against it you know the constitution explicitly says this but the problem is that we have a attorney general who's and his wife who are very in favor of this so and very interesting legal considerations in it too right now i think we need to be pretty clear that with a lot of these things we're not going to land on the perfect solution we're not going to land on a education solution that forever puts the education funding question behind us by linking it to inflation, right? Or we're not going to, you know, we're not going to fully, you know, solve the state's hiring issues because we're probably not going to, you know, they might do the retirement plan, but are they going to pay them enough? Are they going to, you know, all these other sort of elements that go into this thing. Um, But, you know, kind of what sort of things emerge from that also, right? What kind of Republican points are are negotiated through this that, you know, do we fix public assistance, but do we tie it to even more complicated forms, right, that make it even more difficult for people to get to? And I think that, yeah, I mean, that's well, going to be the question with a lot of this. It, it's funny that the conservative argument in a lot of this is that we don't have enough accountability, but at the same time, they're saying we have too much administration and too much too many people, too much money's not going to the classroom. And if you're talking about like introducing accountability members, you're talking about introducing a whole array of middle management data wranglers uh, and paperwork that's sort of tangential to education. That's not actually the work of teaching kids how to read. So, do, you know, do you want do you want teachers filling out a bunch of paperwork about what they've been doing today and doing a bunch of standardized tests, or do you want them actually in the classroom teaching? It's sort of wishful, magical thinking that they're going to, they're going to get both. Yeah. And I think that's like the, the story we've been kind of hearing over and over with it is like, so they passed the Alaska reads act last year that, you know, ideally puts a whole bunch of tutoring, intensive tutoring towards kids that aren't meeting it, but they didn't put any money towards it really. You know, they put a very minimal amount of money that, it doesn't even keep up, you know, with inflation, doesn't make them whole, doesn't, you know, it's, you know, they've already lost this funding increase through inflation, basically. And so yeah. now they have to figure out how to implement this entirely new program without the resources to do it. And now we are wondering why they're not doing it so well. And it's just like, yeah, 
Unfunded yeah. mandates, unfunded mandates to schools are cuts because you're chewing up someone else's time and you're not increasing funding. Yeah. So, anyways, okay. Uh, good conversation. Next week we're going to come back and we're going to talk about the permanent fund and taxes and funding government. And uh, you and I are maybe in disagreement on some of this, so who knows what this will look like. But yeah. um, if anyone else wants to chime in, dial find a pizza and your phone will magically connect to our hotline and we'll record your thoughts and uh, maybe share some of them on the show so uh i hope everyone has a good week out there in alaska and uh, matt i hope your jaw's feeling better after your dental surgery it's doing all right hope yours is too yeah yeah we both got our we both got our heads cracked open and new teeth glued in this last week so well i got a new screw screwed in oh so. you when do you get the your tooth, when tooth you get your three new... months away oh old chomper yeah. mm-hmm. what are they making it out of you get to choose we'll find out i don't know yet you know, we got to like... do the we got to do the they call it a torque test oh wow first yeah. they got to make sure that like screws screwed in there yeah and then they give you some big crystal tooth and you can become a james bond villain or something i hope so yeah Yeah. all right well good luck with all of that it sounds (laughs) terrible um and uh floss your teeth everybody yeah everyone floss your teeth floss go do it right now yeah (laughs) all right goodbye alaska bye alaska